man stood on the edge of the platform looking water 10 meters below. It was tranquil. He wasn't anxious, although what was about to happen in the next few moments, few seconds, would determine his future. So he arched his feet, stood on the balls of them, balancing, looking down, reached his arms up in a perfect spike above his head, took a deep breath in, closed his eyes, exhaled, opened his mouth, opened his eyes, and dove. There's something in us that doesn't like unresolved tension. Right? Something in us that doesn't like when we don't know what happens next. Uh, Just a few few weeks ago, my wife went through what is a very regular uh, mammogram now for her. And um, one of the bonuses, if there's ever a bonus of having breast cancer, is that when she gets... Um, mammograms now, she gets her results instant. I mean, basically right away, they're expedited results, okay? But there's a tension. Every woman, I think, in this room who's had a mammogram understands, and that is the tension from when you have a mammogram to when you get those results, right? You're always wondering about what's happening. The tension is increased, I think, after having gone through a couple surgeries, chemotherapy, and radiation. The the downside of what happens three years after you get done with cancer is apparently you get thrown back into the regular rotation. And so a couple weeks ago when Stephanie went through this, she was told she could get the results in about a week or so. Um, And that's like, this isn't fair. This is is not what I would like. Um, It's a long time to wait for someone who's been through this already. So it was too long for her. And she called, and she said, "Can you can, can you please expedite these? Please, can I learn can I learn the, the results faster than a week?" And so they were gracious. They called her that same day. There's something in us that doesn't like unresolved tension, right? Some of you even wonder, like, okay, so how were they? How were the results? This isn't about her. Um, no, she's, by God's grace, she's fine. There's something about us that wants to have things resolved, but there's a problem with that. The problem is, is that things are not always resolved, right? In your life, there are times when you have, you want me to go to handheld? Use the handheld? Am I cutting in and out? Okay. Do I need to use the mic at all? Okay. So I'm going to mute this. They're working on that, by the way. Handheld mic is that I can't use my hands. I, I hate handheld mics, so I'm going to use two hands. Okay? So anyway, um, this unresolved tension that exists in our lives is, is a reality, and it's, I think, heightened by the fact that nowadays we have this Instant gratification in so many different ways. And instant communication, right? You send a text message to somebody, uh, and if they don't text you back right away, what happens? You kind of look. You're like, okay, that's been like one second. 
You know, and if something if they don't text you back soon, you start to project what's going on. You project either there's something wrong in your relationship or there's something wrong with it. Are they okay? And so you start to wonder about this because we don't like unresolved tension. We don't like this in any part of our life, including, I would say, I'd like to present to you that we don't like unresolved tension when it comes to God. When it comes to our faith, we don't like this because we want God to be able to, to respond to us clearly and specifically, like if we if we know something's going on, we ask God, we wanted to tell us the answer, you wanted to tell us now, right? But here's what happens. When when there's unresolved tension, when I tell you about my wife a little bit or about the, the diving guy, you kind of lean in a little bit, right? You lean in slightly because you kind of are like, I'm being drawn to know what happens next. Perhaps God uses unresolved tension to draw us near, to draw us in towards him. And we're going to see that this morning as we conclude uh, the, the book of Lamentations in chapter 5 in this series, Weep With Me, The Lost Language of Lament. And because what's going to happen in chapter 5 is the book is going to end with some unresolved tension that I believe the author is doing on purpose. And so let's see if we can learn from this together. Grab a Bible with me. We're going to be on page 577 in uh, the Story of God Bibles that you have under your chairs. would strongly encourage you to, to grab a Bible and open it up and follow along with me or use your app to follow along because we're going to read through the whole chapter together. As we dive in, I do want to uh, give you some context because maybe you're coming this morning and you're like, I, I don't know what Lamentations is. I've never heard that before. Uh, give you a little bit of a context. Think about the year 587 B.C. This is, this is the year we're at. The Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar brought his army to Jerusalem in that year and destroyed it burnt the whole place to the ground. Okay, I actually have a picture here, Gary, in this next slide of artist uh, rendition of what this would have looked like, the Babylonian army coming up against Jerusalem. They destroyed everything. And this is what uh, many scholars believe to be the, the most traumatic experience in the Hebrew scriptures for the Hebrew people in the Old Testament. Okay? They were told, hey, you're going to be in the, you're going to get to go to this promised land and you get to, they built up the city of Jerusalem. They built a temple there where God's presence apparently was dwelling. And, and now all of a sudden the whole city is trashed. The temple is destroyed. The golden bronze is taken off to Babylon. The people are taken captive. And, and those who are remaining are remaining in the middle of a desolate land and city. And so Lamentations is, is written, it's a, it's a book, it's a collection of five poems that was written by a poet who lived through this drama. Okay, now we don't know. Some scholars believe that it could have been Jeremiah. It makes sense. It could have been Jeremiah, but it doesn't say it. So we don't want to assume that it is. And when um, if you look at something you won't see in Lamentations in, in English, but something I could show you from Hebrew is that the first four chapters are poems that are called acrostic poems. Does anyone know what an acrostic poem is? What's that, Jim? It's alphabetical, so each line starts with like A, then B, then C. So in Hebrew, this is Aleph, Beit, Gimel, it goes all the way through, as if to say, hey, this is the A to Z of the lament that we're experiencing. It's like all-inclusive, all-encompassing. Now, chapter 5 is the only exception. It's not an acrostic, and, and here's why. I don't know. I don't know why it's not. I wonder if why is because at the end of the day, the poet was like, I don't even have structure with this anymore. This, this is so bad. I can't even put a structure to this anymore. So um, let's see what the poet says about this. Uh, Lamentation chapter 5. I'm going to pray and then I'll read through this with you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that although this is uh, 2,600 years old, Lord, it's still relevant to us today as if it were written uh, this morning. Father, help us to see something new by your spirit. Speak to us through these words. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Okay. Chapter 5, Lamentations. Remember, O Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to aliens, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans and fatherless. Our mothers like widows. We must buy the water we drink. Our wood can only be had at a price. Those who pursue us are at our heels. We are weary and find no rest. We submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more. We bear their punishment. Slaves rule over us and there is none to free us from their hands. We get bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the desert. Our skin is as hot as an oven, feverish from hunger. Women have been ravished in Zion and virgins in the towns of Judah. Princes have been hung up by their hands. Elders are shown no respect. Young men toil at the millstones. Boys stagger under loads of wood. The elders are gone from the city gate. The young men have stopped their music. Joy is gone from our hearts. Our dancing is turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. And because of this, our hearts are faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim from Mount Zion, which lies desolate with jackals prowling over it. You, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. And the book ends. Sort of trails off, actually. Look at this last line again. Unless you've utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure, trail off. Now, I was reading through this, and I was trying to think through how, how interesting it is. This is how the book ends. It's unresolved, right? It's, it's as if we don't know what's going to play out next. In fact, I was thinking about this, and I want you to look at, if you swap the last two verses around, here's what it would look like. If just, if just they just, the poet just wrote the last two verses differently. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Unless you've utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may return, renew our days as of old. Do you see the difference in tone? Do you see just how that, those two verses swapping them around would have made that much of a difference in how the book ends? That's not how it ends. It ends as we have it. Unless you've utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. It's so interesting that this is the case. Why does the author leave us with this unresolved tension. Here's why. Because we have unresolved tension. Okay? Because this is a reality, I think, that we experience in our lives. But to make a case for that, I want to back up a little bit, start over with you in in chapter 5, verse 1. The the author, the poet, cries out to God in verse 1 and says, Remember, O Lord, look 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 at what has happened to us and see our disgrace. This is a theme throughout Lamentations. Look and see what has happened to me, okay? Whenever you are going through some pain or suffering in your life, there's something in your life that you may be experiencing some strife, some struggles, some pains and suffering. One of the questions that you ask is, can anyone else see? Does anyone else see what's going on? Does anyone else care? Does anyone else know and experience what I am experiencing? Sometimes when I pastorally working through folks who have lost a loved one, for example, you kind of know how it goes if you've either been in those shoes or have been near someone who is. 
someone passes away, and there's a great flurry of activity. People come around the, the, near, the near family, up to the funeral, maybe even a few days after. But then what happens? Everyone goes back to normal life, and they want you to go back to normal life as quickly as possible, too. But you're wondering in the midst of that, you're like, no, the flowers may have wilted. It doesn't mean that this is all good. I'm still here. Does anyone else see? And here the poet cries out. <clears throat> he says, God, don't forget what's happened here. Look and see. But make no mistake, God has seen everything. In fact, for, for over 700 years, God has seen personal, communal, and national sin and rebellion against him. That's what he's seen. See, there's really, I think, three core reasons that we lament. There's three core reasons, I think, that we lament. The first reason that we lament is because of our own sins. It's our incessant selfishness, inherent uh, putting ourselves over another, that causes sin, that causes damage and destruction in our relationships. Okay? Uh, Did you guys have a video? Was it a video last week uh, of a guy named Bill? If you were here? Oh, he was here. He was here. So last week, Bill talked about very vulnerably, right? I mean, like very vulnerably and very deeply about his own sins and the implications of those sins um, and the wake that it's caused. One of the things that I think he may have shared, but he he shared when he shared it, uh, when I heard him share it, was that he's like, you know, we can choose our sins, but we can't always choose our consequences, right? This is why we lament give you a story about this um a child that i know very well who will remain nameless okay uh last week had an altercation on the bus ride home okay and so uh, there was another child that was involved and that child's parents ended up coming they must have found about it found out about it quicker than we did and so those parents who are neighbors of ours came over with their child and we're kind of like, hey, they knew that their child wasn't innocent in this because the child that I know very well and this child uh, were both a part of this. You know why they were a part of this? Because they're little sinners. That's why. Okay, just like you and me. Okay, that's why this stuff happens because we're sinners. So anyway, um, so their parents kind of preempted this and came over before we even kind of knew what happened. And then they, they, my wife was home. I wasn't home yet. And so they kind of reconciled, confessed, and did all that. It was all kind of good. There was even a potential play date on the calendar in the future. It's all, it's all good. So, but then Steph and I sat back down and we were like, I don't know if there was like enough consequence here. Like, I don't know if this was a legitimate consequence for this child that we know very well. And so we sat this child down and we're like, what's going on? What's the deal? And, and this child was very afraid that, that Mr. Kasich might find out about this, the principal. Oh, no, Mr. Kasich might find out. And so I said, yes, Mr. Kasich is going to find out. You know how he's going to find out? You're going to go in there tomorrow morning to his office, and you're going to tell him what happened. No! 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 And so tears just start coming down, you know? But, but that's what this child did. See, we can choose our sins. We can't always choose our consequences. So, number one, we lament because of our own sins. Number two, uh, very quickly, we lament because of other sins. Okay, just flipping around. Because other people sin against us, and there's a wake of destruction, devastation, because they do what we do. Okay? And then thirdly, there's also lament because of the brokenness and fallenness of this world. In other words, if, if my wife gets through cancer, if you get through that thing or whatever, uh, we can get through it. At the end, death faces us. Okay? At some point. 
We still have the brokenness of the fact that death is part of our world. There's still accidents. There's still systemic injustice. There's all kinds of things that still happen that are, that are kind of outside of even personal uh, individual sins being done to one another. So here's how we lament. Now, in chapter 5, the poet laments what he sees as the effects of sins at three different levels, personal, communal, and national levels, okay? And each one of those sins has this kind of uh, consequence, ironic consequence that goes along with it. So I want to walk you through this. Let's start with a personal level. Verse 1, O Lord, look and see our disgrace. And verse 2 says they've lost their inheritance. Uh, Professor Adele Berlin notes this. In ancient Israel, great pains were taken to ensure that land was not alienated from its original owner, family, or tribe. So in other words, in the, in the Hebrew people, they were given this land, and it was given to their family. They're their, like their individual families. Here's your land. And then what happened is let's just say that Roger and I had a little thing going where I owed Roger some money and I couldn't pay him. He could take my land, okay, because that's all I had. So you take my assets and take my land. But what happens is they had this thing called the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, Roger, like regardless of what happened, Roger would be like, okay, here's your land back, which I know sounds like kind of like socialism or something. But, but here's the thing. God is a God of second chances. God never wants his people to be enslaved to one another or to anybody else. Okay, and so the debtor always becomes a slave to the lender. And so in this case, he says, hey, we're going to clean slate this thing every 50 years. So here, the irony is, is that people in chapter 5 were losing their land, not to a brother or a cousin or an uncle. They're losing it to foreigners who were never supposed to have their share in the inheritance to begin with. Okay, so there's an irony in this sin consequence at an individual family level. Okay, not only that, it was supposed to be the land flowing with what? Do you guys know? Flowing with what? Milk and honey. Yeah, they can't even find wood and water. Individually, they can't find wood and water in this land that was supposed to be flowing with milk and honey. So personal disgrace. Second disgraceful consequences at a communal level. In verse 3, it says that the people have become orphans and widows. It says in verse 11 that the women, both young and old, have been ravished across the countryside. Think about that. Think about the implications of what that means. It means that the women are not able to defend themselves. Their fathers, their husbands are not able to defend themselves. They're being ravished across the countryside. This is horrific stuff. In verse 12, the leaders are somehow hung by their hands in public shame, and the elders are disrespected. This is all happening. And in verse 13, young men and boys are reduced to doing the work of basically animals. I don't know if they had eaten all the animals. There was no one left to do some of that work, but they're doing the work of animals. This is a bad deal. Now, the irony here in this consequence is captured in Dr., uh, by Dr. Christopher Wright. He says this. This next slide, Gary. Among the many ways in which Israel had ignored the covenant laws of God was their chronic neglect of precisely those categories of people whom God commanded them to care for. For example, the widows, orphans, and foreigners. Now, having failed to care for the oppressed, they have joined the ranks of the oppressed themselves. You see the irony in that. And I think we have to take a time out and ask ourselves, Kettlebrook family, how are we doing? The, the commands that God gives to care for the, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner apply to us today as a family. How are we doing? Because it seems that there's a correlation that we, if we are not caring for the widows, the, the orphans, and the foreigners, that we become them. That these things become who we become. So there's consequences at a personal level, a communal level, and then at a national level. In verse 8, it says that slaves ruled over the whole country. So the puppet Babylonians were ruling over. They were just servants. but They were slaves, if you would, of the Babylonian government. They were ruling over the area. It says they had lost their crown in verse 16. The crown had fallen off their head. 
And in verse 18, Mount Zion itself is the center of the nation is just decimated. And again, the irony here is people are ruled over by slaves. They, they were actually taken out of slavery. They had freedom. They were taken out of Egypt and brought into this land and given this land to rule over it, and now they're ruled over by slaves. These are the consequences of sins at, at, at personal, communal, and national level. Now, to be clear, the poet's not blaming God in this. The poet is not blaming God in this. He's just saying, God, would you look? Would you look at this? This is a mess. Now, he does try to blame his dad. You see this in verse 7? Verse 7. Uh, Our fathers sinned that are no more. We bear their punishment. They're kind of an easy target because they're all dead. Okay? So, like, saying, hey, look, at my, our dads did this, and it's all their fault, and we're bearing their punishment. And, oh, man, those guys are so stupid and lame, right? So he tries to push it off. But then in verse 16, here's what he comes back and says. Woe to us, for we have sinned. So he owns it as well. He says, this is a mess, and this is our fault too. So, so God's not necessarily being blamed here, but the poet knows that God has control over the consequences of what's happening, and he's allowed this devastation to play out. He's allowed the consequences to play out at all these different levels. And then in verse 17 it says, because of all this, because of all this sin and this mess, our heart is faint and our eyes have grown dim. Okay? So, in other words, you... The hearts are faint, the eyes are dim. There is a lack of hope and a lack of vision. So the poet here has said, hey, I've got no hope and I've got no vision for the future. Let me ask you this. Somewhere in your life, there is something that you're probably lamenting the loss of. Okay? Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's the loss of a job. Maybe it's the loss some way of your reputation. Maybe it's the loss of a friendship because of some conflict, a marriage because of uh, a divorce. Maybe it's the loss of, um, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what the loss is for you. But if you're here this morning and, and you're saying, you know what, there's this unresolved loss and hurt and pain, you are able to connect with the author of chapter 5 even here in Lamentations. Because... They're, you're right there with them saying, this, this is, it's hard for me to see beyond this. My eyes have grown dim and my heart has grown faint in this. It's hard for me to see God in the middle of whatever this is. Maybe it's a diagnosis. I don't know. But if we're really going to track with the poet in chapter 5 here, we can't just do so as the victim of this other stuff. We can't just do that. We also have to see that there's a good chance that somewhere in our lives there's a lament because of our own sins. Okay, And I think one of the reasons that our eyes grow dim is not just that we don't have vision or hope for the future, but it's also that we don't see our own sins anymore. We grow callous to our own sins. We become apathetic or self-righteous. And so we have to be careful of, of that. In either case, whether, whether it's sins that we've done or been done to us, the poet gives us the application, and it's this. We have to, number one, remember who God is, and we have to cry out to him. Okay? We have to remember who God is, and we have to cry out to him in humility, in repentance, if we ever hope to have this redeemed. Okay, so Because even, even though the temple was destroyed here in chapter 5, the poet assures us that God's bigger than that. He says, hey, you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. In other words, okay, temple's destroyed, fine. We know, God, you're not destroyed. We know that there's something beyond this. Okay, And so he cries out to God in the midst of this. 
because he, I think, believes that there's still a chance for redemption to take place. That this unresolved tension will not go unresolved forever. So I want to, this morning, have us see how God can cause us at times to experience unresolved tension. And I also want us to experience what it may look like for that to, to be redeemed in part. Okay, So I want to bring a sister um, up to have us share some of her story. Um, it is a it's a hard story, um, but God has been able to redeem some of it. And so I'm not using her name because this will be on, uh, on the web, but um, she's going to share. She's part of our family faith in West Bend. And so, uh, Sister, would you share with us kind of what happened? And, uh, and we'll kind of go from there and walk through some of what you've experienced. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> okay. Um, so just to introduce myself, um, I have three um, beautiful young daughters. And um, being their mother is um, it's a job I've uh, devoted my adult life to. Um, I was felt called by God to be um, to motherhood as I was pursuing a, a degree in engineering in college. And um, I earned the degree, but I, I always knew that motherhood was my, my career. And um, as a mother, protecting my child's an instinct. I'm, I'm sure any mother here feels that as well. And um, well, last October, um, one of my young daughters was sexually assaulted by a stranger in a public place. And I had never felt so physically sad. Um, I couldn't focus on anything. My head was cloudy. Uh, I couldn't eat. Um, my chest was heavy, and just my body ached all over. Um, her her purity and her safety were violated, and that cut into my self-worth um, as her mother and as her protector, her guardian, and uh, felt like a failure. I was trapped in guilt and in depression. And what was taken from her, there's no time or money um, that can return it. And... Um, there's no scars or injury on her, which I'm grateful for, but his act, it penetrated her trust, her security, and her future intimacy. And she, young and innocent, doesn't understand <laughs> what happened to her, um, but I get anxious about what it means for the future. As, as, as our sister shares, you can sense the collective heartbreak, right? In the room, you hear this. I'm hoping that your heart's breaking to some extent. If it's not, then you're not listening. Um, but this is this is tragic stuff. Um, those of us who have been aware of this and trying to walk alongside your family through some of this have known, though, that in the midst of all this pain, um, that you have not your eyes have not grown so dim that you you couldn't see that God could potentially work in the midst of this, redeem this somehow. So tell us what that has been. What does that look like? Yeah. So we do. We serve an awesome God, um, and He is. He has drawn me closer through this time, and um, that's all I could ask for. Uh, the next Sunday, uh, I go to Kettlebrook in West Bend, and um, he healed me from that depression that I'd had. We were um, singing the song, This is Amazing Grace, and um, the first line, it says, Who breaks the power of sin and darkness? And I would have doubted it, too, before I'd experienced it, but in that moment, just crying those words out to him, he he pulled me from that. I was in darkness, and I had been hurt from sin, and um, I experienced his power of healing in a way I'd never known um, in that moment. And um, the weeks that followed, uh, I felt God guiding me. I've never felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit so clearly um, through that time. The The perpetrator was 
also a juvenile. And um, I, I don't think I need to tell you how I was feeling about his parents at first. Um, you're probably all feeling that way right now. Um, but God, he did convict me that I didn't know the whole story and that it wasn't mine to judge. Um, so one night, actually, I, I prayed uh, that he would show me how much he loved the, uh, the young man's mom and that he would help me to love her like, like he does. And um, that was a powerful prayer. My, my attitude did, did towards her changed um, from disgust uh, to compassion and then to actually be able to love her. And um, that was one of many prayers that has been answered. Um, but even at this point, there, there was a night I found myself crying over a pile of paperwork for court. There was a lot of them. Um, I thought I'd move past that, but um, at that point I just felt alone, like God had left, and um, it wasn't worth it. Even through all the um, healing and answered prayers, it wasn't worth it without him. And um, he revealed to me that he, he never leaves. I knew that, um, but I had, had stopped obeying and walked away. And um, he showed me that he, he grew that love for her, for the other mother in my heart, but I had done nothing with it. Um, so at that point, I felt like I needed to find uh, a way to encourage her, um, to show her this love that I had. And I wasn't sure what was legal. We were in the middle of a criminal court case. Um, I wasn't sure what she thought of me um, being on the other side of that case. And um, I didn't know that there was anything I could even say that would, would encourage her. People I talked to about it, they advised that I, I wait. They said there'd be more time after the case was finished. Um, wait for court to be over. We can talk later. They some said I should wait for her to speak first. Um, but God said I couldn't. God said I couldn't wait and that I needed to talk to her or encourage her. Um, I said a prayer for her one day, and, and I knew um, that's what I needed to share with her. So I sent her an email. It was two sentences, and I told her, I said, I pray for you every day. May God wrap you in his love and his peace today. Yes, God said I had to. Um, and he, he has us do crazy things sometimes. But, but it was his leading. Um, yeah, so I did get a response from her. And... Um, and it was actually very heartfelt and compassionate, more so than I, I had expected. Um, she shared that she had been praying for us, too. And um, a, a paraphrase of her prayer, she'd been praying for peace and healing and protection for us, as well as God's presence and guidance through our pain. And, and much of what I'm able to share today is an answer to that prayer that she had for us. Um, and I thought I, thought I was going to leave her alone after that. Um, but God prompted me again. To, to reach out to her. And um, at that point, I was beginning to heal. I wasn't in tears doing it this time. Um, but her reply, it did bring my heavy heart back. And um, it wasn't her words. They were kind. Um, but it was going back to the hurt. Um, and that was painful. Um, just to be back in it and to thinking about it again. And um, But in that moment, uh, God, he revealed to me again that he was allowing me to experience his love that day. It was a window in the way he feels about us. Um, he wanted me to reach out to her. He knew it would be painful, and, and I knew it would be painful, but um, I'd asked him to show me how he loved her, and that's exactly what he was doing. I was actually able to experience it, and he said that that's how he loves me too. He comes back for me, um, 
knowing that I'm going to hurt him again. It wasn't just once at the cross that he took the pain for my sin, but it's time and time again. And we hurt him again. And um, he's patient. He's there. And it's reckless that he comes back for us. Um, but he does have a reckless love. And, and that was a powerful moment um, to be able to experience um, God's love through this. And um, these initial emails actually led to us meeting and praying together. And um, there was a peace uh, from God's presence when we were together. Um, we talked for hours the first time. And um, we both saw that there was a common enemy, um, that, that sin was the enemy, not each other. And um, we've continued to talk over the past few months. And um, just learning more of his story, um, it, it was very broken. Um, she adopted him from foster care. And he had been uh, a victim and a witness of horrific abuse. And it's not an excuse for him. Um, both of us realize that, but it, he does have much need for healing and prayer himself. And um, and our friendship, it's, <laughs> it's a bit unorthodox, um, but it has been a blessing. And it has been led by the Holy Spirit, and it's been healing uh, time for both of us. Wow. Um. One of the things that, that struck me profoundly when we were walking through this is the words that you shared to him in the courtroom. Can you share Can you share those with us? Yeah, so during uh, a statement that I gave to the judge in court, um, this is what I read, um, talking about the, the boy. And I said, I trust that God can bring complete healing to him. I pray that he's not defined by the titles felon or sex offender. I want him to know that he is a child of God created in his image, loved and worthy of love. I pray that God reveals himself to him as he has to me through this. How can you how can you say those words to the one who has done this to your daughter? Um, well, I could say those things um, because they're true. And um, I've been forgiven much uh, as, as he has too. And um, I can say these because of who God is, that he's sovereign and he is faithful. And he has used um, a tragedy um, to allow me to experience him, experience him deeper, um, his power and his presence, not just to know about them, but to um, have been through them. And um, he is our sole comforter. And in verse 19, you read, God still reigns forever and his throne endures from generation to generation. And I know my daughter is the next generation, and he has given me um, confidence that he will take care of her and draw her um, to him through this, as he has for me. And um, I also know that the boys is also the next generation, and, and that's my prayer for him, um, that God will use this to draw him closer. Um, because despite the brokenness in the world, that God's throne does endure forever. Amen. Isn't that awesome? Praise God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you um, that your throne does endure from generation to generation. And Father, in this case, Lord, we thank you that our sister's uh, heart did not grow faint beyond the point of being able to see you in the midst of this and cry out to you, that her eyes did not grow too dim to see that you can redeem even the darkest situations. May we learn from this. Father, may we be inspired by what you can do in our hearts. May we apply this kind of radical love and forgiveness because it's the radical love and forgiveness that you have shown us in your son. So we pray for the next generation. We pray for the folks involved here. We ask that you, this would not be the end of the redemption. There'd be more. There'd be more redemption, Father, that you could be pointed back to and said, 
you are the God who can take this brokenness and make it beautiful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we give a can we give a God some glory in that? Yeah, thank you, sister. Family, when we our sister doesn't doesn't her eyes are not too dim to see. It's just amazing. And we can have we can have the same. She can see a hope and a vision beyond the tragedy in the midst of the tragedy. Here's the question can you? Can you see beyond the lament in your life? Can you see beyond the suffering? Can, you, can your heart not grow faint and your eyes not grow dim in the midst of what it is that you are enduring? That he, God, can redeem even the most broken situations. As our poet leaves us going, unless you've utterly rejected us and left us and you're angry, would be on measure. Okay, some of you are here today and you're with that poet. You're saying, I don't know if God's maybe rejected me. Maybe God's angry with me beyond measure. If, if that's you, here's the thing. I need you to hear this. God rejected his son so that you would not have to be rejected. God's anger was poured out ultimately not on Jerusalem, but it was poured out on the cross so that our dim eyes might see. You know, it's not, I think, a coincidence at all that when Jesus walked this earth, one of the things he continuously was doing was healing blind people. They couldn't see. Some were born blind, some were not born blind. He was walking around healing them. In John chapter 1, it says, There was a man who came who was sent from God. His name was John. That's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And family, come into the world, he did. And when he came into the world, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Because he crashed. He crashed into the darkness of this world. He's the one who ultimately bore the consequences of God's anger. The one who, who gives light to our eyes when they're dim. We do not have to... Wonder whether the story is left unresolved because he is the resolution to the unresolved. His name is Jesus. He's the resolution to our personal, our communal, and our national, our cosmic, our global sin. Because in the cross, he disgraced disgrace. He disgraced disgrace in the cross. And he replaced our disgrace with grace. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that your son has replaced disgrace and instead given us grace. And Father, I'm not sure where every individual in this room is, but you know they may be experiencing some disgrace. They may be experiencing some lament. I pray that they beyond measure would know that you're not angry with them beyond measure, that you have had your wrath poured out on your son so that beyond measure they could know that you have not rejected them, but you can, they can be received to you through your son. Help us to keep this in mind, Father. Help us to keep this in the forefront of our minds. We remember you and cry out to you in these times. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.